and welcome back to Shadow Light. Thank you for joining us as we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. I'm Zoe. And I'm Larissa. And we are really excited this week to be continuing our discussion this series about concepts of homeland uh, and in this episode specifically talking about how indigenous frameworks and language help us understand and expand those concepts of homeland. So I feel like we're going to learn a lot this week. But before we get into it, Zoe, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, babe. I'm trying to think of something interesting that I've been up to to like bring into this section. You know what? Me and my friend today booked a voucher holiday. Have you ever done that before? Oh, what, like the ones where you don't know what it's going to be? Well, no, it's not that, it's just that like, I have like four days left of leave and so does she that we used to take before March. And you can book like a five day holiday all in for £99. £99? How? Yeah. And so it's like, we wanted to go to Scotland, but to go to Scotland from London by the train, it it was going to cost us £150. And so this whole holiday is going to cost less than even the train to Scotland, which breaks my heart because I would love to just go to Scotland really easily. But here we are. So that's like exciting. Where are you going? Italy. Oh, lovely. Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to do some like mountain walks and stuff. It should be nice. What about you? How are you? (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. I'm yeah. I'm in like a reflective mode this week because yeah, as we were just saying before we started recording, we had the race report stuff that's been a long time in the making. So I'm just like, I'm just like, you know, we did it. People don't know what's the race report. Yeah. So uh, in my work at SOS UK, I'm on the steering group for the race report, which essentially helps to monitor the kind of demographics of the climate space, whether that's people working in sustainability, climate justice, environmentalism and so on. And yeah, so I was just, you know, when something big is coming up and you're just like, it's on your head. Now that it's done, I'm like, oh, that's nice. She's released to (laughs) Um, the universe. Yeah, literally. Oh, so I can breathe. And we continue the breath out because we're so excited we've got an amazing guest this week we've got one of the shadow editorial team with us so it's a real honor Samara would you like to introduce yourself yes good morning everyone oh morning for me (laughs) my name is Samara Almonte I am calling in from Snoqualmie territory which is part of the Coast Salish tribes that are located in Washington state in the United States so-called um, I am from the community of Puroran Michoacan, which is Purepecha territory. And um, yeah, I'm just really excited to be on the other side. I haven't been interviewed for a podcast in a long time, so I'm excited for today's conversation. It's enough pressure having a fellow podcaster, you know. But no, we're so excited to have you. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, and how are you doing? I'm doing good. I was really busy this weekend. We had a really important ceremony in my community. And I feel like Sunday, I just slept all day. And then yesterday, Monday, I just caught up like on work. So I feel like I'm getting my energy. And yeah, I feel actually really good because ceremony is all about it's actually our new year. So I just feel like it really does feel like the new year for me. Like January was just a trial month, you know? Mm. (laughs) Can we ask a little bit more about the ceremony like what it entails yeah. this ceremony I I will be transparent I did not grow up knowing this unfortunately my community although it's in the Purepecha territory because of colonization and uh, the Catholic Church and so many other things we can get into later in the podcast my community in particular doesn't have a lot of its indigenous traditions but it's funny how in diaspora sometimes is where we find ourselves and we come back to these traditions because I think they're always like looking for us and finding a way for us to come home to them. And so 
although um, I'm not doing this on, or we're not doing the ceremony on Purépecha territory, we're able to do that in good relationship with the tribes of whose land we're on. So it's essentially our new year, our Quira Quiri Quinchiqua. I'm still learning on how to pronounce their language, but as Purépecha people, you know, we, one of our main elders, one of the main relatives that we speak to is the fire. And I always really like think hearing when um, our elder in the community talks about why the fire in its, you know, years ago when we were born, we were being born in, in our homes, you know, with doulas, with uh, midwives. And the first thing that we would see when we would open up our eyes would usually be a fire because you're being born in at home where there's a fire to warm up, you know, the water, the towels, et cetera, for the woman to be born. And really the fire is at the core of everything we do. Um, and so this uh, new year is really a way to essentially put down the old fire of the old year and then literally create a new bonfire, a new fire to start the new year. And there's like ceremonies or protocol within that that we do of like, it's a lot about offering and gratitude. So we offer food that we have that day to our grandfather fire in the ceremony. We offer um Okote, which is like a special type of like, they call here in the United States fatwood. I only really know it as okote, but it's like a lot of resin from a tree. So we're offering all these things. We're offering honey, all these sweetness to the fire, asking for, you know, a new year that's filled with sweetness and protection and love and and empowerment, really. And I think in particular right now, I went into that ceremony with like just a really strong prayer for for Palestine and for all our indigenous relatives, all our black and indigenous relatives across the world to just find that fire within them to keep going. Cause it's really difficult times right now. I'm not going to lie. It's hard sometimes to like, even with the Gregorian year, right. To be like, Oh yay, New year. When like so many things are happening across the world to not feel hopeful about. But for me, this ceremony really brings back that literal fire inside of me because it just is a reminder that, after so many years, after so much violence that's been attempted at my community, like we're still here many generations after, and we're still here practicing our our language, our dances, our ways of life. And although it's sad that we have to do this in diaspora, at the same time, I find it beautiful because then we get to connect with other Native people. Um, like we have, you know, elders from like the lands where uh, practicing the song, like singing their songs and sharing their customs, sharing their food. Like we had deer in one of our uh, meals because like one of the tribes um, gave that to us. So if anything, it's really beautiful because then it gets to be more of a, a global type of celebration. That is so special. Thank you so much for sharing that with us because... I think even the the concept of what you're saying about the fire as a relative is something that I find so beautiful. And I also love what you said about the diaspora, because that even made me reflect on like, you know, having to change or find ways of living out the things that your ancestors would do in a new way. So yeah, thank you so much for that. But yeah, what you were saying about the understanding the fire as your relative, can you can you speak to us a bit more about that? Because I know that on your podcast right? You have conversation with Indigenous folks from across the world, from what I understand, and from both your lived experience, but also that dialogue with other Indigenous peoples. Like, Do you find that there are other forms of examples of language that, you know, connect you and your communities to the environment in a different way? Because I feel like English is such a as a language, often so, is so disconnected from nature, from environment, from the world around us. So yeah, for our community, like 
throughout the ceremony, because it's a couple days, um, we really connect with all the different, you could say, elements in English. But for us, you know, they're really elders because they're the first ones that were here before us. Like we have um, the night before we do the fire ceremony, we have a temascal or a sweat lodge, as some Native communities know it. So, you know, we're in a specific type of dome that's created with things from the earth, like um, branches and such that are bended into this dome shape. And and we sweat in there together. We bring in what we call the grandmothers, which are these big rocks that, again, have been here since before us. And those get heated again in the fire. So there's that fire element. And those are brought into this demascal, this lodge. And, um, and then water is incorporated as we pour that over. And, and we sweat with that vapor that comes out, you know. And this is just like in the very technical terms. But so as you can see, we're already incorporating all the different elements there. And, and that to me has been a really profound way of reconnecting with spirituality because it does feel like I'm in the like in a womb literally like because we close up the lodge like they're usually covered well every community can do it differently but here the one I go to is covered in blankets so then we just close up the blanket at the door so that it's completely dark and it just feels like you're in the womb but both in like the womb of my mother but also the womb of the earth because mm. I'm literally like sitting on the ground and I can like you know you can feel the water as you're like sweating, but you can also smell things like um, they put tobacco and they put what we have is okote, like a medicine plant for us. And they put sage into the rocks so that when the water vapor comes out, it smells like all this. And something that I thought was really profound was that an elder said that a way to also connect with our grandfather wind is through prayer to like saying it out loud, you know, because that is also a form of of putting it out there into um, into the wind for those prayers to be carried. And so all of that is incorporated in just this small ceremony. And then the next day is when we do the Mother Earth ceremony. And that is, again, a just direct way of the way it happens is they build a hole into the ground. And then, again, we make offerings. So we bring in everything that we're going to eat that day is poured back into the earth. Everyone brings their own like basket of like fruits and and uh, maybe vegetables or again like nuts honey etc whatever they want to offer up to mother earth and we pour that in and just knowing that like none of that is going to hurt the environment because obviously we take lots of good care that it's organic and it's you know compostable but it's really sad that we even have to think about that because if we were doing the ceremony back home most likely we wouldn't because all our produce would have been like locally grown and we would have known where the produce came right and all these mm -hmm. different um, food elements but here doing the ceremony in the united states we have to be a lot more thoughtful about like okay let's take off like this sticker from the store off this fruit before we put it into mother but anyways yeah so there we're really speaking to her to guadipedi our mother earth and I really like how, again, my elders, I'm, all of this has really been knowledge that my elders have passed down is like that it is Mother Earth because it's just a, a creation, really. Like she created all of this that we have. She created us as children as part of this. And then um, later in the evenings, I mentioned earlier, is when we connect really with Grandfather Fire as we start the new fire. And then the next morning is with our elder you know, water. And so at that point, we, with the remaining like flowers and fruit that we had from the ceremony, kind of like a cross or like this big sort of platform is built. And then that's brought into the the river. We we do the ceremony by a river, but it could be any body of water. And that's where we let that float in as, again, a gratitude towards the water. And I just love seeing all these elements come together because it just feels 
so holistic and so connected in a in a spiritual way that and this is where we're going to start getting into the history of like colonization but growing up catholic and my community is still pretty catholic right we have like this we have a man that we are praying to right it's jesus but it's also our saint and señor del huerto which is like another uh, man like symbol and i just never felt connected to it the same way I sometimes would feel more connected to like the Virgin Mary, if you're familiar with this saint, like, because it was another woman, right? And it was another brown woman. And I felt like, okay, she looks like me and she's supposed to be this like mother of all of us. But now that I've been more practicing this way of ceremony of praying and connecting with elders that are really just like the elements that I can feel and see all around me, it's, I find that it's such a much deeper connection than when I found myself being brought to church and prayed to something like Jesus. And, you know, we could, this could turn into a whole other episode about the Catholic church and like how we could like probably untangle, like probably Jesus did care about the environment and connected to like the land and, and all that. I do have belief that like at their core, like all religion is inherently connected to the land and wanting to protect. But of course, through colonization, a lot of that just got shifted to more of like uh anthropocent uh, what's it anthropocent um when it's like human centered anthropocene i can't think of the word right now uh, anthropocentric i think you were you were okay, bang yeah on. okay yes yeah so i feel like that got shifted as humans interpreted that right but i think when i get back to practicing this form of spirituality with my community my Purepecha community it removes a lot of that and we're not seen as a center anymore but rather as again in relationship and and that's really what it's been for me the last couple of years since I've begun to reconnect with my indigenous practices. And that has led to like connecting with other indigenous communities here where I live. It's just all of us constantly come back to relationship. And that is, um, as you mentioned with my podcast, like when I've talked to all these different people from different diasporas, it always, always comes back to that. And I think also about like the Lunar New Year that's happening like right now with different Asian communities. I live in an area where there's like a lot of different Asian diaspora here in the Seattle area. And so I know about how they're getting prepared for their Lunar New Year. And I know a lot of elements of the earth come up in that as well. They also have offerings they do in their altars. Food is a big part of it. It's that you have to drink a certain, um, like, like all these different drinks and things you do. And so, again, I just keep looking at all these other cultures and I'm like, all of us have an inherent connection to the environment. All of us have some sort of ceremony we do throughout the year that connects us back to the land. But when we're living in these urbanized spaces and when we're living in these occupied settler spaces, it can be so, so hard to get back to those practices. I just want to say, like, you were saying you haven't been on the podcast, I guess this side of the mic before, because you're always interviewing people. But damn, you're an amazing speaker. Like, Mm. (laughs) I felt just then, I actually really felt I think I need a need of myself to step into a bit more of a spiritual way of life or something because the way you were talking about your community and your practice is like damn like that is yeah I don't know there's a lot to think about there in the way that spirituality makes us think more deeply and intentionally about how we're connecting with the earth around us and I yeah um, yeah and I think like it can be I think a lot of questions I hear sometimes or I see is like people that are not indigenous like let's say here me living in the United States right like settlers that want to be a good relationship or that just like want to kind of you guys decolonize and heal some of that or like well how do I do that how do I do it because there is a lot of appropriation right like we could also talk about all the white people that are like over consuming like white sage and are like doing all this hippy dippy stuff that ends up like really being harmful and appropriative 
But I think at the core, like what everyone could do, despite of your ancestry, is just like that practice of gratitude and relationship. Um, another um, community member I met here from the Saanich tribe, which is a local tribe. I always think about his story of his mother and grandmother of whenever they would, you know, go to a different body of water, they had to visit it or really any body of water, they would take the time to introduce themselves. Mm-hmm. So like before stepping in, before swimming in, before gathering water from that river, that um, lake, et cetera, they would just take a moment to say like, I am so-and-so, a daughter of so-and-so, and I'm here in good faith and just ask permission to even be in relationship with you, whether it's drinking you, swimming with you, et cetera. And so I think that's something anyone of any religion or ancestry can practice is just gratitude. Um, I have a partner who's Muslim, and so I've gone to learn a little bit as well of like Islam and how that gratitude happens there. And again, very similar. And so I think this is like a value that can really be across culture and ethnicities. And it's just about that gratitude. And that I think is the spirituality that we can have with, with Mother Earth. Thank you for that, because I feel like a lot of people will take that action forward and and think about how they can implement that in the just like day to day. I think also as you were speaking, I was thinking about what you were saying of growing up Catholic, because I also grew up Catholic, of growing up Catholic. And it, it sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so feel free to correct me, but it sounds like you almost led your own path towards your own homecoming. Like, how did you even set about that? This is sorry, I'm going off peak, I'm going off course, but like how did you how did you make that decision and like reckon with the things that had obviously been lost through colonization, but say, you know what, regardless, I'm gonna go on this journey because it is spiritually I have to. Yeah, I, I often come back to that question, especially when I think a lot about just like again, the harm that is done by people that do appropriate indigenous culture and like just want to take again like the pretty part of like the clothing or the dances or the spirituality even right is attractive to people but then there's not that commitment to like self-determination for indigenous people and that fighting for land back and that fighting for our self-determination and so I would say my journey really started more like in that political aspect yeah so I grew up Catholic and then I went to co- off to college and, you know, I wasn't living with my family anymore because it was far away enough where I would just live up there um, where I went to college. And so then I started becoming more politically involved. And um, it was like a mix of like just social justice, human rights, but then also environmental justice. And through that political journey is when I started, you know, obviously connecting with indigenous folks and kind of starting to question myself a little bit of like, what is my identity? Because growing up here in the United States, I was put on the label and I took it in as like being Mexican, Mexican American, because I am a U.S. citizen. But at the same time, I always felt like this strong pull to back home to my community in Michoacan, because I also grew up there for a little bit um, when we were young. So I had this strong foundation of like, well, yes, I'm here. And yes, a paper says that I'm a U.S. citizen, but really like my home is back there, you know, like that's where my parents were both from. It's where my grandparents and many generations. So like that really feels where like my roots are. And it's funny too, because um, now I've heard this a lot in our community that I didn't realize this, that when usually like in the traditional way, when a baby is born and, you know, you have the umbilical cord and, you know, it's cut off and people would normally throw away that waste or whatever. Um, In our community, like you want to put a little bit piece of that umbilical cord on the earth, like down, bury it in the land where where you're from, where you were born, because then 
they say, you know, whenever you get lost, like that's, that's where you're going to come back to. That's where you can be guided. And my umbilical cord, unfortunately, was cut and, you know, disposed here in the United States because that's where it was for me to be born. But then I talked to another woman, talked and, and she shared for my community that that is really hard for us, those of us living in diaspora, because although maybe we didn't get to bury our umbilical cord back home, like it remembers, you know, that that's where we should have that connection. That's where we need to be. And so I think I just like constantly like in this political space and just growing up felt like so uneasy. So like, I'm not here, I'm not there. I think really what just like made the big drastic change for me, like as I was in college and, and politically involved, I started questioning the Catholic church, right? So I started learning more about our history of colonization and how the church was used to that. But then I definitely feel like I was floating around, right? Like not a really big anchor in terms of spirituality and I could tell my mom was worried because she was like, okay, if you don't want to be like Catholic, at least find like something else to like anchor you. But I was still a little bit lost. But then, and as I became like involved in the environmental field academically, like I felt like that's kind of where I was like, yeah, I feel really good when I'm out in the mountain when like that feels like prayer. But I didn't really understand it until honestly, my dad passed away. Um, So he passed away in 2021. And I... Like my mom is connected to her community, but she eventually later was moved into the city, which it's his own conversation, right? About how folks get displaced from their communities and have to move into cities to work. So she eventually grew up in the city. So her connection to our land and territory is a little bit different. But my dad was really like, really, really in love with the land that he grew up in, really like connected to it and and just like really knew that that was like, I think part of his purpose and mission. And Unfortunately, he also suffered from a lot of uh, drug and alcohol abuse. And I think that is another symptom of colonization that a lot of men and people in our community in general suffer from, right? We know that that was brought in when colonization came to our communities. But yet he still, I, I think the moments that I saw him the most like sober and the most like really connected and, and in his power was when he was like connecting to the land and explaining to me and my sister like that relationship. And so when he passed away, of course, I'm even more lost. I'm really even more uprooted because like this one person that is really like literally who brought me to help me bring to this world is gone. And and we had a messy relationship. And that's when, you know, the sisters here started inviting me to to the sweat lodge. And in that space is when I started like finding like peace with him and, and talking to him and feeling connected to him. And so I think since then I was just like, OK, like this is a call that like if I really want to process the grief, if I really want to like stay connected with him, I don't know. I just like felt that calling. I was like, okay, this is the time to really like be more disciplined. And if anything, I feel sad that like I don't have more time because again, this capitalist colonial system keeps me like at my desk nine to five. It keeps me like doing all the little things I have to do to like pay my bills. And so can you imagine if we were able to follow like a calendar that connected more to like the rhythm of the land and, and the spiritual world? Like right now in winter, I'd be hibernating, right? I'd be just like sitting around fire, telling stories, like cooking with my community instead of having to be like enslaved to work essentially. And so, yeah, I think when he passed away, I just felt that calling and I've just been like connecting more to this diaspora community that's here of my indigenous community And I really think like for those that want to reconnect indigenous people that are hearing this across the world, like you have to just show up. Like I could have just done the reading. I could have just done like the, okay, I'm going to buy the regalia and like this will help. But for me, it's really been like the moments I show up to ceremony, the moments I help 
I do the mutual aid because mutual aid has always been a core at indigenous people. Like when I do those things, that's when I feel that connection is really strengthened. And so now I just feel like I can't really go out in any way without thinking about that first. Like I'm, I'm a skier now. I learned to ski that same year that my dad passed away. And now like whenever I go ski, I feel uncomfortable if I don't pay, you know, like gratitude to the mountain that I'm skiing. And that's something really odd to do in, in something like that, because I feel like skiing is a super hyper-capitalist, like consumption-based, like sport, but I really take it as more of like, this is a different way for me to connect with the mountain and and just really appreciate it in its form in the winter. So yeah, that's a little bit about how I just, I think really my, it's my dad, like leading a lot of this for me. And, and I think because like, it's been hard with my therapist, I thought, talk a lot about like, how I wish if he was alive, I know that maybe we would be doing this walk to ceremony and this walk to like our roots together. And maybe that could do some of that healing from his drug addiction and his alcohol addiction, because it is a lot of way, like I've seen other indigenous people in their memoirs that I've read, talk about how that's the, how they became sober was through like ceremony was through reconnecting because it, right. It take, does some of that decolonization. And so it's hard to think that my dad didn't get to do that, but now I think, okay, this is my, responsibility to carry this and and start bringing the rest of my family along it feels overwhelming sometimes sometimes it feels like I'm the only one who wants to reconnect or wants to find these ways but I think there is magic happening because like this was my maybe third or fourth new fire Purepecha ceremony that I went to and this was the first one that my family like really showed up I had my mom my sister a cousin two cousins and my uncle come to the ceremony with me so I'm like okay like what will next year look like will they they already want to participate more, right? Maybe more of my family will come. And so it's sometimes I just think you have to step into your purpose. And I guess mine is this. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm so sorry for your loss, but it does really feel like from what you're saying, you found your calling, which is amazing to be kind of bringing your family, holding your family's hand back into this, to these ways of life. And also it sounds like it could be quite a lot of pressure as well as like a young person trying to reintroduce people back to a way, especially when there's, Catholicism involved that sounds like it could be kind of an intense job and I, I know you also just saying there that you know we really do hate the nine-to-five from keeping us from doing what we want and, and being able to be in a more like slow care centered rhythm but I also want to ask you about you because I know you're an urban planner and I think that's really interesting to the like the theme of home that we're talking about um but before we get into that when you first came on the pod earlier you you were talking and then you were like sorry I'm still learning the pronunciations of of some of our language and I wondered what your journey has been in relearning that language in terms of this the spiritual journey that you've just spoken about about being on so yeah again being transparent I haven't had the time or made the time maybe to take like a more formal class because there has been a couple online classes to like learn our language right so I plan doing that I'm hoping that this year I'll be able to sign up for like the next course but the way I've been connecting with language is yeah I've been through these different ceremonies we're lucky that we have still people in our community that know the language I know that's always not the case in all, all different indigenous peoples and so um yeah when we're in the sweat lodge you know these songs are saying in our language and and I've been able to like repeat the words back now and and learn some of those words for and it's funny because all these songs are always talking about our connection to the land whether it's we're saying gratitude to water to the moon to the sun to the uh, fire like so I've been able to learn those words as I sing them and then yeah just every time our, our elders like say a prayer over um, our food over um, anything really that we're doing I'm able to hear those words and 
it's funny because I was telling my part, I tell my partner this all the time, like I can't logically understand maybe like the language, right? Like it's not going through my brain the way like when I'm hearing a language I understand does, but I can hear it like in my heart, in my spirit, like it feels right. It feels connected. And I think that's, I guess, like my maybe biggest contribution or thought through this whole journey of reconnecting is that Angela, who's been on this, uh, has worked with Shada before, she's a Bolivian indigenous woman, a Chola woman. And she told me this when I interviewed her very strongly, like, who benefits when we don't reconnect? And I just like, it's so simple, but it just blew my mind because she's so right. Like, if I kept feeling ashamed that like, oh, I don't know the language, like I shouldn't show up to ceremony or I don't know the language, I don't deserve to be reconnecting, then like, who benefits from me losing that? And it's going to be this like settler, right, colonial system because that's what they wanted us. They wanted us to disappear as we see with the Palestinian people right now, as we see with folks in Sudan, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, I think like, although I don't know the language, I can feel it. And lucky too, like my community back home in Michoacan, like when you go travel across Michoacan, which is Purépecha territory, all the names of our communities are in our language. People just like, some of them have been made into like Spanish sounding of it, but a lot of them still hold their native name. And I just been thinking more of like when I go back home, because I'm lucky enough to be able to go maybe like once a year, I pay a lot of attention to the name of those communities and and say them out loud. And I find that it comes naturally to the tongue versus when I visit, like when I visit Oaxaca, for example, I have a harder time saying the names of those communities because I'm like, oh, it's like a slightly different language because it's like in Zapoteco or in Mije. But when I'm trying to say words that are from the Purepecha language, it like comes into it. So I'm like, like the tongue, the body wants to say them again, right? We just have to find that time and, and space to do it. Um, like, for example, even my community, Puruan, is the word for the place of springs, of like water springs, which is true. We have lots of spring water in our community. So just like knowing those names, I think helps a lot. And and I really like would love to see that more here in the United States. I think there are here in Washington, we do find a lot of places that have like their traditional names. Like you go over to Sammamish and Pialup and Tulalip. Those are all, you know, versions of these traditional names. But then there's still a lot of cities that don't. And you go to a lot of urban spaces here in the United States and you don't even know like who is there. Like I didn't know until very recently what the native people were in New York, you know, for example, not such an urbanized space. And I've seen that in Canada as well. They have, I think, a lot more signage. That's like the bare minimum, right, that they can do. But it is nice because then you're kind of confronted with the fact that like, okay, this is native land and you have to say that. I really wanted to ask you, like with your wisdom in terms of like refinding your indigenous practice and also being an urban planner. And like, I guess I'm kind of circling around a question, which I'm not sure what it is, which is something like, this whole season of this podcast is basically looking at different movements around the home, homeland, and thinking, what can we learn from it? How can we potentially build better movements and cities and spaces to to nurture more healthy, vibrant communities? And I guess I just want to throw that question, if it's not too big, back to you as someone with yeah. kind of foots in all these different worlds. Yeah, I think um, I started thinking about this question in a different form when I was in undergrad, like in the urban planning uh, field, because you know, I would see that people would talk about like, oh, we need to do community development, meaning like, you know, we have to like do this like building of urbanization in a way that's connected to community, blah, blah, blah. But it still put the urban planners, right, as in like the professionals, the folks with these titles, and most of the time they were white people, white men in particular, in that power that they're the ones designing and they're the ones inviting the indigenous people or even just like 
different uh, marginalized communities in to participate in the development where it's like, shouldn't we flip it the other way around? Like the experts of the community, the experts of the design should be the people that have been here a long time. And with Indigenous people in particular, I think about this a lot because I think there is sometimes that romant, or there's definitely that romantization that happens, right? That like, oh, we should just go back to like pre-colonization. We're all going to just be living like off the land in these very like naturally made like homes, et cetera. And for some people, like maybe that is what's going to happen, right? For some Indigenous people, that is like what they want and what they see as their self-determination. But then I think for, let's say, yeah, somewhere like New York or a big city, like for for example, Seattle, like what would it look like if Indigenous people that were in that land before it got, they got displaced and then to build these big cities, like what if they were able to get their land back? Like maybe they want to keep that infrastructure, right? Maybe they want to keep that urbanization, but it's going to be in a native way, like the designing, the way of that, the buildings work. And I think that's what I kind of found nerdy and passionate about urban planning was that a building isn't just a building or a street isn't just a street, like it's physical material that you design, but it totally has like a, social and political function you know space is political physical space is political because we've seen like across different communities you know here in the united states with segregation like physical space was used as barriers right like only black people here only white people here so physical space was literally used as a way to demonstrate that racial hierarchy demonstrate that power that white folks wanted want to have over land over people and I always say it always comes down to like like settler colonialism would not exist without their desire to privatize space um, because that's what they're doing right they're privatizing land as we see with the earth the way they're um, extracting from it and so yeah going back to that question of urban planning I think like people also forget like I only had one class that really touched on this and I'm really grateful for this professor Nabil who would bring this conversation as because he himself was not white in America. So I think he had that more global perspective. But we talked about the cities that existed before colonization, right? Like even for my communities, we had huge cities. Um, I'm not Aztec, but we've seen imagery and uh, we've seen a lot of records of what the Aztec societies looked like before colonization, what is now Mexico City. I've gone to go down to... Um, the Yucatan area in Mexico and seeing the Chichen Itza and like all these Mayan quote unquote ruins, but they had like whole cities, right? I just listened to an episode about Machu Picchu. I haven't had the chance to go, but just imagining all these different cities that they had, all the all the infrastructure we've seen across the world that was there before this European colonization just makes me think like if that hadn't happened, like this colonization and this genocide of our people in our ways, what would cities look like now, which is so cheesy, but this is kind of why I like Black Panther, like the first one in particular, when they show us Wakanda, right? Because although, you know, like we can talk about Marvel and their like contribution to like, like normalization of military and all that. But I do think like just this world building of like, what would like a futuristic world look like for Black and Indigenous people had we not seen colonization? And it's still possible because we're constantly decolonizing and and still here. And that's also why I get really emotional when I see imagery of like black futurism indigenous futurism because it's a way for us to say like we still exist in the future and that could be in a very urbanized space you know but then that just means you're hearing indigenous people indigenous languages as you're walking down an urban space you're seeing that imagery and again buildings are used for our ways of relationship you know I get really sad when I see all these like 
Black and Native elders, like, out in the street as homeless people, like, they should have a home, like, in our ways, right, of tradition, like, they would not be homeless, like, they would be taken care of. And so what would it look like if we reimagine all these buildings, all these cities in a way that everyone's needs could be taken care of? And, and that includes also, like, folks that are disabled and, and queer folks and, and, and such, because they were always part of our community. It's just, like, again, with colonization, it's been, unfortunately, a way of um, creating hierarchy where now we just focus more on like our own elevation of power. And yeah, so I hope that speaks a little bit to the urban planning, but that's that's all I think about it. Constantly it's just like the future of it all. Like what do black and indigenous people look like in the future? And I won't see all of it, but I'm just here putting the seeds for those generations to come. As you were talking about that futurism, I was also thinking about the fact that you're so... In what you're saying, it feels like you're really connecting like the spirituality to the kind of political impetus that that gives us to kind of actually think about, okay, what are, how do we deal with homelessness? How do we deal with these things that wouldn't have existed had we not gone through what Black and Indigenous people have gone through? Do you feel like that connection is clear, like on the ground with other folks who you're in these spaces with, doing these ceremonies with, because like, I, I guess for me, it just made me think that I know some people who are super into like reconnecting back to kind of Caribbean modes of spirituality and so on, but maybe aren't necessarily involved in the like, okay, but what does that mean? I think what happens, unfortunately, I mean, this is just my like sort of stab at this, is that I think because like, in these fields, and I experienced it when I was in the urban planning field, because when we're in these fields that are tools of like settler colonialism, like, you know, I would laugh and like this professor that I talked about, Nabil, would say like, us as urban planners, like we are tools of the state, like as much as you are like, we're going to do community work and like make it sustainable, like we are still agents of the state because most of the time we're working for these cities and local governments, right, and implementing these things that lead to gentrification. And so I think what's hard is that in all our jobs, whether it's you're an urban planner or you're doing something else, we often are asked to leave that spiritual and that reconnecting part at the door, right? Like I'm just supposed to show up at Samara, like my government worker right now, I work for local government here, and I'm just supposed to focus on like the practical, logical way of rule following to fit within this like settler system. But what I've tried to do in the last couple of years, and I think this just comes with growth and time, is like now I show up like my full self. Or I try to at least, right? So now in my job, I don't leave that like part that's like, okay, think about it in from an indigenous perspective or think about it from like a, you know, what we've learned from black liberation movement and self-determination. Like I try to bring that into everything I do. And I'm sure in some places it's gonna cost me an opportunity or it's gonna be like, oh, she's too radical. Cause even like when I was in school, I remember trying to bring like, well, like, did you know about this? Like, like, you know, these ways. I remember even like this was in, I graduated in 2019. So this was before we saw the uprising again of Black Lives Matter in 2020. Um, I would bring up things about like defunding the police and thinking about different ways of like just structuring our society. Like when we were having conversations with my urban planning peers and they would all look at me like I was crazy. Like there's no way you can have like a society like that. And then what happened in 2020, some of those same people were like, yeah, defund the police. They're like, we have to reform. And I'm like, Exactly. Like, where were you when we were having these conversations in in school? And it's fine, you know, people get to grow and, and learn. But I think that's what's frustrating is that as Black and Indigenous peoples, people of color, people of the global majority, 
we're often asked to leave our ways at the door when we get into work, when we get into school, and then they'll sell it back to us as like a new age thing, right? Like be like, mm. oh, like we just discovered this way. We just discovered this practice. And it's like, we've been knowing that. <laughs> you just didn't want to hear or you thought it was backwards. You thought it was uncivilized, right? And so I think that's what I would say is just like, how can we learn to show up more authentic and with all parts of ourselves to our work? And it's not easy. Again, obviously we get microaggressions out of that. We can get fired. We can get pushed away. But I think that's really a lot of the work is that you don't have to always be out in the streets and doing all this like political action if you just don't have, if it's not in your ability. But even just in your work and school, you can show up in that way. Yeah, that really reminds me of the idea of kind of being in but not of the university and kind of almost being like disruptive as as students or as academics in that space. But I feel like that's, as you're saying, something that you can apply in so many different contexts and so many different jobs. Yeah, I really love the idea of just in everything that we do, bringing that perspective, bringing that lens, because that is that is who you are. Sometimes I feel limited, if I'm being honest, like in my work right now in government, this is my first time working government. Like I'm learning a lot, but I feel limited because I know that it's like being in a box room. I'm like, we could do so much more if we remove these four walls of thinking, but that's really hard. And that's why for me, like at the core, everything I do has to be self-determination. Like people should like to just have that self-determination to decide how they want their homes to look like cities, places, et cetera. But that can be really, really hard when you have those like red tape of like, you can only do this and you can only do that. But again, who made up that whole red tape to begin with? (laughs) (laughs) We try to kind of end each episode kind of moving to a place of hope and potentially thinking of like actions that we can do and and the listeners Mm -hmm. can do. I kind of think you've already given us a great one, which is like, even if you're not someone who feels able to engage in activism directly, you can show up to your school work hobbies whatever as some as your full self and as someone who has beliefs and and is political and enacts that political enacts those politics throughout all of that so I feel like that's a really good one for those who I don't know like maybe aren't able to engage in kind of more traditional direct activism and stuff like that but I was wondering if there's anything else that you would you know is a call for people to think about or do yeah I mean obviously like right now I'm thinking a lot about Palestine and just something I think a lot about is just how it's all, it's all, I think, been building up, right? Like, I think when we did see this and we, we, we continue to see the uprising of Black liberation, as we saw, especially in a big way in 2020. And then this, I think, will snowball to where we are now with Palestine and, and their liberation movement and really coming to, I think, what I'm hoping is a tipping point, right, to a free Palestine, is that these are the movements that are leading us because there's like no other for no other major form of self-determination than just wanting to have your land. Like it always, always comes down to land, land back because land is what colonizers, settlers went for, right? Again, for privatizing, for then to be able to sell it back to us as like a form of paying rent. And then for food, then you can, if you control the land, you control the food production. If you control the land, then you control like, again, the housing, you control like the economy, all these different things. And they know what they're doing. Like these settlers know that like, and then also just that spiritual inherent, like cultural connection. If we don't have our land, then we don't have a way to do our ceremony, our way to do our traditions around food, et cetera, to a place, a safe place to grow our children. And so 
I think like all we can do right now is to engage in any kind of political movement that is around self-determination. And obviously right now, the biggest one that I think needs that is Palestine, because once Palestine is free, I have no doubt that it will just be a trickle effect for all of us to imagine and see what self-determination is going to look like in a real time, right? And of course, with Black people as well, just like, what does that look like for their own self-determination and and identity? So yeah, just think about all the Indigenous people everywhere that are in this constant wave and movement, finding that. And, and I know even like in London, this is again, something that Angela told me a lot about was that she's like, even in this city, if I were to like rip it apart underneath, it's native land, it's land, it's always been native land. So how can you connect with more of that self-determination? And self-determination can, I think at the core, it's about land, but obviously there's like other ways that it is with like food production, like looking for ways to get, if that's your thing, maybe looking for ways where there's like local food production happening that you can volunteer or support. If it's more about um, education, seeing how people are working on a curriculum that's more based on like actual history, right? Integrating Black and Indigenous history. If you're more into uh, the arts, I think we definitely need more people writing music, producing movies and films, et cetera, that bring this theme of self-determination for people. So I think there's a lot of different, uh, depending on your interests and passion and gifts, like there's a lot of ways to engage with self-determination. And then earlier you mentioned like kind of where to look. I really like, and this is on you all side, the Centric Lab. They're there in London. I think, yeah, I think um, Shadow has shared before work from them, but I just really love their whole thing, like just the way they, they go about infrastructure and that connection with, again, the urbanization and in um, like spirituality and just community like healing. Like I'm a big fan and nerd about that. I think people talk about her a lot already of like in terms of a um, black uh, futurist writer, but Octavia Butler, of course. And then I'm also a big fan of Bell Hooks, who I'm like so sad that I didn't get to see speak in person before she passed away. But just all her work to me is also really foundational to this. And then um, a novel I wrote or I I read uh, <laughs> recently that talked a lot about this indigenous futurism for me was And Then She Fell by Alicia Elliott, which I'll just put in the chat so that it stays there. But that was a book that really like touched me on that indigenous futuristic perspective um and it made me reflect a lot on what I'm doing and for the future generations oh yeah that was enough actions thank you so much I feel like people are really going to appreciate that because we we really do like to help people move forward in this because they'll listen to you and they're going to feel inspired like I know that already so now that they've got things that people can take up and do depending on their interests their passions and that's just beautiful so thank you so much and I think you were speaking it into existence there when you said the book that I wrote so we're all waiting for the book now I do have that goal you know I just I need to get my iron check I need to do some health stuff and then I'll have the energy just you all wait in time yeah in its time in its time and just for a plug for those people who want to do all that reading but sometimes find it hard to hold themselves accountable if you're interested in futuring and speculative fiction and world building and the role that sci-fi has to play in helping us imagine something different we have just launched a new shadow bookshelf which is going to be hosted by isabella one of our the other shadow editors and the theme of this one is world building and reimagination i believe the first text is called is a book called palestine 2048 which is an anthology of of short stories set in palestine in 2048 and so that really brings together some of the themes of what samara was talking about so 
that yeah. might be a good way to explore some of these themes as well yeah. so yeah live on on shadow right now larissa have you got any kind of final thoughts before we close out honestly this is this touched me in a lot of ways serious samada thank you so much for this conversation because it actually made me think about connection back home when you said and you're talking about what angela said about like who benefits when we don't reconnect Ah, me. That's when my brain started spinning because I said, ah, "What am I? What am I doing? What am I actually playing at?" You know. Oh, would like, you drop that? And like, yeah, I was like, "Oh my god." To feel like to feel a type of way about pursuing a connection to back home. To you know, when I going back home and my cousins would laugh and be like, "Oh, you're so British," like you know that kind of thing. But like, <laughs> like it's true though. Like my accent, the way I carry myself. But like for me to rebuild those connections like what do we have to lose like what do we have to lose in fact it's only gain it can only be gain and I really do believe like the universe the creator whoever it is that you know you believe in like it responds to your true self like I was so nervous and had this big imposter syndrome that people are going to point at me and be like you're not native enough or you're like an imposter but it's been the quite opposite like people Mm. I've found the right friends I've been finding the right elders to guide me in this and I think it's because it's like your truest self right and so the universe is responding to that yeah I've just got mean cousins so that's it <laughs> yeah I mean yeah girl we all do yeah <laughs> part of the culture so <laughs> and Zoe how are you feeling now that we're at the end of the episode yeah ditto I like for me is it, it uh, as someone who is has raised kind of an atheist household for me the question is about reconnecting it's about connecting for the I think really for the first time and like Mm. I feel like the last few years something in my bones has been crying out for spirituality or some kind of spiritual practice I I feel like something I'm my body is calling for it and so just hearing you speak today has really like set me on that path of being like I actually yeah it's not just going to happen naturally girl you need to go as you said you were like I had to show up to the events I had to show up to the ceremonies it's like I have to figure out what that looks like for me and not just think oh wouldn't that be nice like how am I going to show up and start practicing gratitude for Mother Earth. So yeah, I'm so inspired. <laughs> I'm so inspired. Yeah, and I think in like the theme of this podcast, right, of homecoming and home, it's like, again, they want to take our land, they want to take everything else, but like they can't, like they really can't take our, our home, right? Like our inner, like ourselves. It's like, maybe that's where we start coming home to ourselves. Where can people find you? What should they be accessing? Tell us about the podcast, all of that stuff. Yeah, so I definitely feel like I've been in hiatus since my... Dad passed away like slowly, like, you know, coming back into that creative field. But I feel it in my bones that this is a year that a lot is going to happen. So if you want to keep up, the Instagram is Nuestras Raices Verdes, which I know is a long title. But if you look up Raices Verdes Media, it should come up, um, which I'm sure will be linked in the podcast notes. And I really use the Instagram primarily to communicate that. But then the podcast is on Spotify and anywhere, everywhere else you can find it. I'm hoping that this is the year that I bring out more content. Also the same name, Raices Verdes. And yeah, I think that's that's the main places where I am right now for till further notice. <laughs> but I'm always open for people to reach out and, you know, continue collaborating. And if you haven't already checked them out, you've done two guest episodes for Shadow Light, which were in between yes. season one and season two. So and they're two amazing conversations. Um, so do check those out as well. If you have any thoughts in general. Um, you can hit us up in the DMs at shadow.mag on Instagram or at shadowlightpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Samara, for joining us. You're Thank you. amazing. Thank you.